Hello, welcome back to Resurrections and Adam Warlock Podcast. I'm Al Fidano, your host, and with me again is a co-host, John Wilson. John, oh, you paused, I thought you were pausing for me. So I can come in and say John Wilson. Oh, you still did. Your son is better. <laughs> I can be dramatic and, and, and weighty and full of pathos and sound like I, you know, I don't know, I, I just feel like today is a good day to be a demigod on a parallel earth. I like that so, idea. Yeah. I'm going to put a Shazam Thunderbolt on my chest and get some really weird... Like, how does the cloth on his costume stand up from his shoulders? I mean, is that a, like a lot of starch? How does he I, even do that? That's like a cardboardy or like solid thing. That can't be comfortable. No. But, well, maybe it is, but, I mean, it's him. It came out of the cocoon with him, so I assume it's part of him. The hive, oh, yeah, I guess so, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you maybe just make like, it look like everyone's to. Maybe it's like bone, like Doomsday. He's emulating the high evolutionary, because his does the same thing. Yeah, his, except um, he doesn't have a handle on his head. Right, right. He kind of looks like, sort of looks like the, end, the, the, the grip of a um, gasoline pump. Like yeah. somebody is somebody's like filling the high evolutionary's body up with fuel. <laughs> You're right, yeah. And the head is just the pump. <laughs> Actually, Brian and I in episode eight were talking about it. We there was sweat coming out the high evolutionary at one point. We were trying to figure out how he sweat how sweat comes out of armor. Yeah. We figured out that's what that's for. It releases like you know it's for hydration. It releases sweat and stuff, so he doesn't sweat inside the armor. I think Iron Man's done that before, too, had sweat on the outside of his armor, and you look at it, and you're just like, what? And he puts yeah, a I, nose on the front of his mask. and I was going to say, after the nose, I stopped questioning. He was in an anatomical phase at the time. The nose and the roller skates are the best part. Well, speaking of episode number eight, uh, episode number here, is this going to be all new episode number one? Because we finally have, finally have a Warlock series. This actually is episode one, zero. Oh, I see what you did there. Well done. So, applause. It's still sort of a one. But yes, today we will be talking about Warlock number one. He finally has his own series. And Which finally has a reason. Finally has a reason to have his own series. Finally has a reason for this podcast. <laughs> exactly. I mean, he's rambling they, on about Thor doing stuff for like half the time. Right. And if, if, they had, if the character had only ever been treated like he was in FF and Thor, we wouldn't care. No, he would have been nothing. Yeah, he would have been like the Griffin or something. No one cares about the Griffin. Not even the Griffin cares about the Griffin. They they name dropped him on Ages of Shield, and I saw that it was the Griffin, and I was like, oh, really? I missed that. They name dropped his secret identity. Whatever, what not secret identity, but whatever his original name was. Yeah, the human name. Yeah, but we do have the Day of the Prophet in front of us today. The power of Warlock. And you were talking about this on another episode with Brian. I do like that name, the Power of Warlock. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It makes it look stand out a little different. It wasn't just Warlock. It was all about his power. Yes. Half so really, the, 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 the feature of this story is not even the orange guy. It's his power. And actually, yeah, and half the time it's the high evolutionary still. Because yeah. he gets to do all the flashbacking. Well, like it, four it, pages of monologue. And it is, an episode, it is an issue one. And this is 1972 that this is coming out. So the fact that you're picking up a number one off the stands... They're expected to get some flashbacks, and so I think that was pretty a pretty good idea on their part. So you have the High Evolutionary introducing what all the heck's been going on up to this point, 
And then we continue with the story with uh, the man beast and the prophet and the wandering around the city and the John the Baptist <clears throat> um, stuff that they're yeah. doing before. Exactly. Although I will say it does make sense. It's number one, but considering the fact they just came out after a, a two issue tryout thing, reading them together, it's just like, oh, good, another flashback because we just had that. <laughs> now, granted, I know at this time, premise they're always going to have a flashback every issue because of uh, people, way people picking it up on the newsstand and stuff. There, you know, you're not guaranteed that everyone's going to have picked up all the issues beforehand. But reading them all together, but usually it's just like a short one page, two page thing flashback, not like four pages. But I understand and why I do The book was not exactly coming out super regularly. There was a three month gap between issues one and two of Marvel Premiere. And it's a bi monthly book as it is. And then another three month gap before uh, Warlock number one came out. So it's been six months since the last time we saw this backstory. So I think, it, I think it's warranted. Yeah, no, it's, it's warranted. It's just a little frustrating when you're reading it all, you know, all together. Yeah. But, you know, that's my issue for reading it 40 years late. I should have read it on time. You know, <laughs> it was not conceived yet. Have you mentioned the fact that this whole opening run with the Marvel premiere and the Warlock and the Hulk issues, this whole pre-Jim Starlin run, is a Marvel Masterwork volume? Yes, I have. Okay. Well, guess what? We just mentioned it again. Yeah. No, I do actually do the reprints of each issue. Okay. Where can find them. I forgot to mention it actually last time when you were on, but I'll put you on this time. Hey. Because I realized afterwards, I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot that. But enough of us babbling on. Um, hold on, everybody. I'm going to give you the recap of this issue, and then John and I will be back in a minute to talk about it. So that way, even if you haven't read it, you can still follow along. Warlock number one, The Day of the Prophet. Cover date, August 1972, and went on sale on or about May 30th, 1972, with a cover price of 20 cents. Writer Roy Thomas, penciler Gil Kane, inker Tom Sutton, letterer Sam Rosen, cover art, depending where you look, according to Comic Book DB, it's Gil Kane and John Romita Sr. According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, it's Gil Kane and Joe Sinnott. This issue begins with the High Evolutionary continuing to narrate for his personal electronic microjournals. He starts off talking about a cosmic catastrophe that he must somehow avert. On the original Marvel Earth, NASA, well, I mean, they aren't called that, but that's what's implied, is sending up a new rocket to explore the far side of the sun. The problem being that Counter-Earth, the planet that the High Evolutionary created, resides on the far side of the sun. He is concerned with the cult shock that will occur when the people of both Earths discover they have a twin planet. He considers destroying Counter-Earth to prevent that from happening, but then remembers his promise to Adam Warlock to allow him to save the planet from the Man-Beast. On his control board, he has two levers right next to each other. One will destroy Counter-Earth, and the other will cause it to exist a microsecond out of sync with the first, and render it invisible. Deciding that there is a chance the people of one Earth would discover the other, he must speak with Warlock. Down on Counter-Earth, Adam is walking through the desert with his four young companions when he hears a high evolutionary calling him. Adam then floats up high in the sky to talk to him. During the course of the conversation, the high evolutionary asks Adam to release him from his vow to not destroy Counter-Earth. Adam refuses, saying that there is good in mankind. The high evolutionary reluctantly agrees but not before warning Adam that day may come when he would beg the High Evolutionary to destroy Counter-Earth 
and sends him back down. After landing, Adam reveals to the hippies that he plans to head to the nearby city they have spotted. But before going on, the four must decide if they want to follow or head back. David, Ellie, and Eddie quickly agree, but Jason does not seem convinced. He argues a bit about Adam's mission, and when David tries to convince Jason to go on with them, Adam tells David he does not want anyone who doesn't want to be there, and that each of them must choose for themselves. Either changing his mind or bowing to the peer pressure, Jason agrees to go with them. In the city, they wander until they come across a long-haired man in a white robe who calls himself the Prophet. The Prophet is preaching to a crowd that he has only come to pave the way for another who can help them in ways the Prophet cannot. Adam is approached by a young woman with a star, birthmark or tattoo, I'm not sure which, on her cheek, who asks Adam to save her brother, the Prophet. Adam tells her that it is too soon and surprisingly asks if she knows who he is. She tells him that she does not know his name, just that he is a good and mighty man. One who can protect her brother from those who wait. Those who wait can be seen waiting on a nearby rooftop, and when the sun goes down, they attack. The two who wait fly down from the rooftop towards the prophet, but Adam and Dave Carter intercept them. One of those who wait, who calls himself Hawk, H-A-U-K-K, but sounds like Hawk, like a bird, get it? I don't think it was funny then either. Knocks Dave aside and starts to attack the crowd, while Adam takes out the other one. Adam knocks Hawk down and is distracted by talking by, to the prophet, which allows the other one, Pinjun, P-I-N hyphen J-U-N-N, get it? Pinjun? Yeah, still not funny. To hit him from behind. When Adam counterattacks, Hawk shoots him with some kind of energy blast from a weapon on his wrist. Adam then takes down Pinjun, but Hawk grabs Dave, flies up into the air, and hurls him down towards the ground. Adam catches Dave, but this is enough of a distraction for a Hawk and Pinjun to escape. The kids start to question the prophet, who is offended as he has come to ask questions, not answer them. Adam tells the prophet off for being rude to those who helped him, and when he asks why those two targeted the prophet, the prophet tells him it's because he is trying to warn the world of the danger of the man-beast. He claims to have heard voices in his head which warn him about the man-beast, and can even help find him. Adam leaves with the prophet to find the man-beast, and is taken below the city to the sewers. They travel for a while, through many twists and turns, before they arrive at the man-beast's lair. Here, Adam finds a man-beast sitting on his throne, surrounded by his evil new men. Adam leaps to attack, but finds out it's not the man-beast sitting on the throne, but a mannequin. The prophet then reveals that his face is actually a mask, and removes the mask to reveal the man-beast. He then tells Adam that he, Adam can either leave as an ally or never leave alive. All right, we're back. So shall we talk about the orange guy with the uh, not-quite-pants that he's not wearing? He is wearing less than Robin. Yes, although he does have the whole little uh, loin, fat loincloth, what is it, uh, brief look like Robin had. Right. And his belt's like a big Hyperion belt. Yeah. So anyway, we're talking about the cover for Warlock 1, and... I didn't like this as much as the first two covers, the Marvel Premiere 1 and 2. Um, the thing that I liked about it uh, was it's called the, – the caption at the bottom is Night of the Man-Beast. And we do have like a night-invoking dark image of the Man-Beast hovering over Warlock's shenanigans. So yeah. I did like that aspect of it. Yeah, he was looking down like he was an evil god, which makes sense. 
Right. He's supposed to be the Satan for the Counter Earth. Um, I thought the new men he was fighting, they're all like kind of goofy looking. They look like a bunch of chicken men. Yeah, and this. Okay. They weren't really scary or dangerous looking, I thought. This scene is out of my High Evolutionary's flashback, isn't it? Because this isn't it's, a scene in the book. Well, he does, he does fight kind of like birdmen in this issue. But they do look a little more dangerous, at least in the issue. But yeah, yeah he does, he, he does similar. fight two birds. I was thinking about him pummeling a crowd of new men. That doesn't happen in this issue. No, no, you're right. It does look very similar to the flashback from uh, Marvel Premier 1, where he's fighting a whole bunch of the new men that were attacking the High Evolutionary. Right. Yeah, so we're starting off, like we said earlier, We start the story starts off with the High Evolutionary narrating. And uh, it, I like this the, the full-page splash of him. I mean, that looks good. That's a great opening page. The High Evolution looks good. The camera's a little bit low down, so we're sort of on level with his legs looking up. And it's just very, very dramatic. I do really like the caption blurb. And beginning, a full-blown series devoted to the superhero your letters have proclaimed the most unique in the history of comics. And I, was, I wrote in the notes, what's the over-under on whether the letters actually said that? But A, it's had six months to run uh, letters, and B, there's a letters column in this issue. So we already know that, yes, that is, in fact, what they said. Yeah, I'd like to get my hands on some of the copies of Marvel Premiere, like three or four, and see if they, were, they actually ran letters from Warlock in there. This issue has letters from Marvel Premiere 1. Ooh. Okay, good, because I don't have that, because I'm reading this on the uh, Marvel Digital Comics Unlimited site. Okay. So they don't have, they, I didn't see letters in this one. It just ends with the issue, where the issue, where the story ends. Sometimes they have letters, sometimes they don't. One but anyway, so. Okay, so I'm going to go to the Skype window, and how can I send this to you? There we go. Oh, cool. I don't know that I'll have that every issue, but I have it with this one. Oh, cool. I know, that's, that's we're, awesome. we're at the mercy of the scanner. So, like we said, High Evolutionary starts off narrating, gives the history of uh, his creation of Counter-Earth, and also, actually, no, this is where he starts off with uh, people on regular Earth are sending out a rocket to go around the sun, and he's all worried about the fact that they're going to find Counter-Earth. Yeah, so he has to monologue and do stuff at the same time. If I speak quickly, it is because I must act quickly as well. Now, my first thought is, okay, he never thought about this before. Even if Counter Earth had been created perfectly and Man Beast never showed up and the series never had to happen because Warlock was still just floating his cocoon, he never thought about the fact that people might find it? I mean, um, like he kind of, <laughs> it seems like a problem that he was going to have no matter what. And he's treating it like, well, since, you know, since Counter Earth is, is bad, flawed, maybe I should just destroy it. But it's like, well, what were you going to do if you thought it was perfect? Yeah, I'm guessing that this opening bit with the rocket is to put off some questions that were raised either by letter writers or by editors and, you know, other people in the office. Because, uh, yeah, he should have thought of this ahead of time. But I do like, again, this comic is sort of a commentary or treatise or at least treatment of religious thought. And it's very much of its time period because this is a very 70s way of looking at religion and a 70s way of getting to talk about it in comics without people calling you on bullshit. Um, can I say bullshit? That is true. Yeah, okay. sure, why not? We'll put a explicit tag on this one. So he is describing himself as no better than those that he's fashioned. 
and the idea of God being bound by the same morals and same choices of right and wrong that we are was definitely a thought that was going around in the 70s. Um, that he's not, oh, yeah. some, he's not higher and his ways are better than our ways. Yes, people, of course, have said that for centuries. But a lot of people were starting to say, well, why? I mean, good is still good, right? And if God is good, then why is God going to do stuff? Yeah, so there's not. a lot of questioning going on back then. Yeah, so I like that here. Also, <laughs> on the other side of that coin, he really, really wants to destroy the Earth. That's what I have written down, too. It's that he's talked about destroying Counter-Earth constantly, and he pretty much continues to do so for most of the series. And I'm thinking he just creates stuff so he can make a blow-up. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think that's his whole purpose of creating these things. It's just because he likes seeing stuff go boom. He's like the the kid who builds the big thing out of Lego, Legos just so he can tear it all down. Exactly, or sets up like the the house full of dominoes just so he can flick the one and make them watch them all go pop all over each other. Or Star Trek special effects people—they build their big models and make them all look pretty just so they can blow them up. I was going to say in about. Five years, this guy would be thrilled with Star Wars at the end of the Death Star blowing up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what if the High Evolutionary is Governor Tarkin? And what if he knew the whole time? I could see that. Because he gets to blow up Alderaan. Yeah. He likes he yeah, the High Evolutionary likes destroying stuff. He's a, well, I mean, it makes sense since he has these levers, one to hide Counter-Earth and one right next to it to blow it up. Right. Because, you know, you do, there's no danger of a mistake happening there. And there, there are no labels. Yeah. But, of course, he's beyond human, so he wouldn't get them confused. And he probably wouldn't care if he did. But their proximity makes a game of eeny, meeny, miny, mo really easy. Yeah. Oops, I slipped. Sorry about that. <laughs> but instead, uh, he does decide to let it live. He does decide to let it live. And... and for the sake of his promise to Warlock. Yes. And so the two Earths will vibrate on a different plane, and that sounds familiar to me. I'm sure I've read about that somewhere, about two different Earths vibrating in the, on a different plane. I think maybe they were called one and two. Maybe, maybe. That might have been done somewhere. And yes. of course, by 1972 and three, we're well into the era of annual crisis events between the two Earths. Although we never got that here. Nope. Never got the annual Earth-Counter-Earth crisis team-up. Because here you'd have, you know, the Avengers and the X-Men and Spider-Man teaming up with Warlock. Just yeah. Warlock. Oh, we will get some Hulk crossover later on. Yeah, which is pretty cool. I do like the speech bubble at the bottom uh, when he's talking about um, how the human beings on our Earth might learn about Counter-Earth. He says, no, that must never happen. I see now what I must do. I must speak with him. Oh, Warlock. Warlock. I need to speak with Warlock. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I forgot his name. Crap. Right. <laughs> oh, and then Warlock, of course, gets summoned up by the High Revolutionary. And they have this yeah. nice conversation in the sky. This is another so, weird piece. What are your thoughts on this whole di uh, debate they have going on? Um, well... It, it almost, um, I mean, yes, I can see the allegory there with High Evolutionary as the God figure and Warlock as the Messiah figure, the Jesus figure, talking to each other that way. Although I, I don't think Jesus 
flew up, but still, superhero comics, so you gotta accept they do that. But also the way he keeps it's almost like he's playing the uh Satan care Satan person there. He's trying to tempt him. He's like, No, come on, let it go. It's okay. You don't have to do what you meant you know, you came here to do. You can let it go, you can just do what you want. It's almost like he switches up now and he's playing the uh what's that, the corrupting character. Interesting. You know, trying to get Warlock to just let it go and just you know, let him deal you know, let him deal with it as he wants to. I am very familiar with the biblical text regarding Jesus and God and the co-nature of those two, etc. I'm not as familiar with extra-biblical texts that have been done over the centuries and the kinds of thought that have been explored by scholars and writers and church leaders or even by popular fiction and musicals and such of the day. Um, But I'm wondering if there might have been a scene like this in John Milton's Paradise Lost because I know of no situation where God really, really just wanted to just, just, just frag the whole planet, and Jesus had to talk him out of it. I don't know of that happening. Yeah, I have no clue about that either. I mean, in Old Testament, yeah, God seemed like he wanted to destroy the earth every other minute. Right. That was yeah, Tuesday. And in that re- yeah, and in that Not respect, Saturday, because it's a Sabbath, but it might have been Tuesday. Yeah, well, Tuesday, he fucking screwed Tuesday. Well, Monday just pissed him off. <laughs> so he's like, all right, screw this place. But yeah, no, it's 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 weird. I mean, I don't know if, if that is taken from something or if that's their own take on it. But yeah, I read it, and he re- did really seem like he was doing the cert, you know the Satan thing of trying to tempt him. And also, this is where Adam Warlock basically gets his memory back, re understands what he is and who he is because um, he lost that whenever he came down in Marvel Premiere Two. He didn't have his memories. Yeah, so it's, he he got some of it back after he killed one of those wolf things. Yeah, but so when not, he, when not he all of it. Neck. Yeah, and so here now he knows exactly what he's there for. And again, this is one of those times we get that uh, black eye look. Yeah. Because I'm looking at it, yeah, and he has that nice big shadow eye. And I don't know why he goes back and forth in those eyes. Um, page 10, panels 1 and 2. One of the things that I really like about this debate is that... The high evolutionary God knows that he made a promise to Adam Warlock, Jesus, that he would not destroy the earth. And Adam Warlock is like, you swore an oath, let me serve the race called human by seeking and defeating him who caused its sorrows. And God's like, oh, yeah, but but that was before I really thought about it. That was before I really, I mean... I think that's awesome. Just like the high evolutionary is like, okay, yeah, I made you that promise. That's fine. Whatever. But I hadn't really thought about it when I made that promise. And now that I've thought about it longer, my promise shouldn't count anymore. Yeah. That's, uh, that's great. <laughs> that is funny. But Adam has a good point. It's like, what, three billion souls must perish so you may sleep at night? You who know neither sleep nor night. Right. <laughs> Which is kind of his way of saying, so you just want to kill all these people just so you can feel better about your experiment. When you were, A, probably going to blow it up anyway, and B, you don't have much of a conscience. And you want me to help you. on your conscience and you don't have one. Right. And then he goes on, you want me to help you by letting you go. He says, no, there is evil in humankind, yes, but there is also good. You have seen it, for it was you who put it there. 
and just, you know, it's just a really, really neat moment. Maybe the good will yeah. come out when the man beast is no more. I do like the little threat that the high revolutionary makes, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to honor this promise until you beg me to release you from it. Oh yeah. Well, I'm, I'm wondering if it was a subplot that they were planning on doing, which just to spoil people, but it doesn't really happen. No, but it is a sort of uh, foreshadowing of a sort of Garden of Gethsemane moment where Jesus is like, if it's possible, let this cut pass for me. He didn't, I mean, according to the story, he didn't want to go to the cross. And Which makes sense. Right. No one, no one likes the idea of getting crucified, right? It's a pretty, pretty hellish way to go. It's pretty gruesome and horrific. Give me the guillotine any day, you know? I mean, the only thing that looks possibly, one of the things that looks worse than it maybe is uh, being impaled. Oh, look, I'm it, impaled. <laughs> That's my Olaf moment. Olaf? From Frozen, dude. Oh! So, um, turning away from the princesses and back to the uh, Prince of Golden Skin. Yes. The page 11 which is the page that ends the debate and Adam crash lands back into his conversation with the hippie, hippie clan, the Scooby gang. Um, the girl is asking Adam, what did you see up there? Who were you talking to before? He says, do not ask me, Ellie. I cannot answer in words that you could comprehend. And this bit started to make me wonder about the religions of the peoples of counter earth. Oh, like what they have. Yeah. I mean, so far, everything we've seen on Counter-Earth looks like it's pretty much the same as the regular Earth. Right. And so we know that we had a that, Christ. Yes. Because we saw that. But we saw him get crucified twice in both Marvel premieres, and the man even calls that in the first Marvel premiere the ultimate transgression. So it's obvious what they're trying to say there, what that scene is, without coming out and saying the names and words. Exactly. Okay, so, yep, so here's my... Th Go ahead. No, I, I'm disagreeing with you. It's like I didn't think about that, but yeah, you have to wonder about like what their religion is there. Like, do they have you know what kind of religion they would have there? So, if they have a Christ, do you think they have a Christianity? Would make sense. Okay, here's the next part. Knowing what we know about this world, wouldn't we know that their Christianity is inherently false? Because their Christ would have been created by the high evolutionary. Their entire world was created in seven minutes by the High Evolutionary. Hmm. And it went through millennia of history, basically on microwave set to high overnight while he had a nap. Yeah. It happened very, very quickly. So I was just I was just thinking about that. Of course, I mean, I have done my utmost best to always speak of religion in, in, in not unfriendly terms, even though I myself am atheist. But I do think that this is something worth noticing. That in this world that had a Christ, they any notion they might have of God would have to be false because it's the high evolutionary. Anyways. Well, I'd say false, but not false. I mean, yes, when they talk about, let's say, let's assume for the sake of argument that since we saw so many things that looked the same as the regular Earth, that pretty much everything is just magically the way it is on Earth. Okay. You know, so their history seems to be very similar. You know, it seems like they still live in America. They have, a, you know, probably have a Europe. So we can assume, you know, 
Columbus sailed the ocean blue, blah, blah, blah. All that stuff happened. American Revolution, World War II, all that stuff. Yes, they, they were created by the high revolutionary, but they're still, if you, I mean, in a theological way, they're still looking at the same God. They're just not realizing that he had nothing to do with their creation. But the exactly. people who are praying to him are still praying to him. They're still looking at the exact same concept of God that we have here. And Christopher Columbus sells the ocean blue, ostensibly, because, and that coincides with Spain ex- expelling all the Jews from Spain in 1492 and kicking out the Muslims because of their Christian Muslim wars in 1492. So you have all of these elements of history that were inspired by religion happening on this earth. And yet we know that they all happened for false reasons. Exactly. They don't know, so as far as they're concerned, they're still prone to the right, you know, they're still praying to God, and if the revolutionary came, I think if that's one of the reasons why he can't tell them, because that's the culture shock. Forget the two are seeing each other, the one earth realizing that they only have existed for about, you know, a couple days. There's a corollary point to this that I'm not saying, because I don't want to be insulting, but I just, I just, I'm going to leave it at that. Also, why are the Scooby Crew and Adam Warlock hanging out where Kirk fought the Gorn? They want to watch round two. <laughs> it's like they rocky and mountainsides and desert, and this is not a place to go hang out. <laughs> well, it's what they, that's what. Well, the question is, what were they doing there in the first place? Because that's where they found him. They were there already. Oh, I thought they walked out here with him. I thought they followed him out here. Well, they have followed him, too, but isn't that where they found him, the first, uh, in Marvel Premier 2? They Could found be. him out in the desert. They found a farmhouse somewhere, not too far from it, but, and then they walked away again from the farmhouse back into the desert. Because there are often farmhouses in deserts. Oh, yeah. Everyone farms a desert. Right? I'm looking at Marvel Premier 2, and yeah, there's a farmhouse and a shed. And that's where they are leaving off at the end of the last episode, uh, last issue. And how they got there, we don't see because there's a scene gap between them meeting Warlock and their parents showing up at that farmhouse. Um, but they do find him. You're right. At the beginning of the story, they do find him. No, they find him in that farmhouse. Okay, so I guess they're already there. But you're right, that farmhouse does apparently uh, exist in the same terrain as that desert mountain look. Okay, so yeah. yeah. That, that would explain why the farmhouse seemed to be deserted, because we never saw any of the people who lived there. So I guess this is like the the last farmhouse on Route 17 or something, going out yeah. of town right before they hit the desert. <laughs> and that's just where they were, and he, and he crashed outside. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, this is California, and I know California does have desert, so maybe it's in that part where, like you said, you know, it stops being good ground and starts being desert, and some fool said, I'm going to farm this land anyway. And then <laughs> years later went, this didn't work out. I'm out of here. And that's why the farmhouse is abandoned. Yeah. For anyone who's worried about the history of the farmhouse. Dave Carter has gotten a haircut since last issue, just pointing out. Well, it was the 70s, so we probably had Ellie do it. Yeah, yeah. What's wrong, Star Wars fans? Disney. Disney killed the expanded universe. They killed the whole thing. It's dead. 
every single book. Not just the novels, but the comics. And the video games, too. It's like they're just stories, and Disney threw them out like stories. I hate them! Okay? Star Wars fans, relax. Here, have a Snickers. No one destroyed your Star Wars Expanded Universe. In fact, I'm going to give you a whole new opportunity to go back and explore all those books and comics that have helped to shape and mold this universe we love so much. Join me on the Star Wars Saga Cast, where I'll be walking through the various branches of the Star Wars Expanded Universe, much of it for my very first time. I'll be bringing you short episodes that review comics, longer episodes that explore the novels, and in-film commentaries, because you know you're just dying to hear what some random guy on the internet has to say about movies that you've seen a hundred times before. You know you are. So come along for the Star Wars Saga Cast at thestarwarssagacast.com. I like okay. the kids, though. I like his little disciples. I do, too. They're very... They definitely have roles to play, and, it, and as such, they're kind of two-dimensional, but two-dimensional in the way that members of a Greek chorus might be two-dimensional, you know? They each have their voice and their position and their perspective to contribute to the conversation, but that's what yeah. makes the group something interesting to add to uh, Adam Warlock. It's a lot more interesting than one person walking alongside him would be. Exactly. He doesn't. It's not just a sidekick then. Right. Because then you expect more from him. These guys can at least fade into the background if needed. On page, they're very loyal to him. Yeah, they are. Except for Jason, who I was really expecting to play either the doubting Thomas or the uh, Judas role, eventually. Yeah, and I forget how that plays out, because like, like I said last episode, it's been a while since I've read these, but you just read them all like five minutes ago. Now, there is a little moment where Jason is questioning Adam Warlock, and he says, I've told you, Jason, I cannot explain it to you. If you come with me, it must be on trust alone. So we have that solo fidelis idea from Christianity. Faith alone. Yeah. You have to believe me or you don't. But at the same time, on that same page, we have a big contrast. Because Adam Warlock points out Jason is arguing with Adam Warlock over what they're supposed to be doing. You know, continuing the, you must trust me, you know, it must be on trust alone. He says, what kind of trust, baby? The kind of trust some cats out there have in the system? The kind that keeps them living in ghettos while they sing God Bless America? And Adam Warlock says, I know you'd like me to help the poor of your world, Jason, but I will not, I cannot, while the greater threat of the man-beast remains. To which Jason replies, then I say, who needs you? And this is a big difference here between the, between the, the, the narrative Jesus and our parallel of Jesus, because this Messiah is not bringing an earthly ministry. He's only bringing a cosmic one. He's here to tear down the big bad. Yeah, that's it. He has one focus, and he is not deviating from it. Right. 
is I have to deal with the man beast. This is why I'm here. And to be fair, also, he has a specific reason. Because it's like, yeah, I can help the four of your world. And then the man beast is still around. The high evolutionary says, all right, enough's enough. Blow it up. And right. you're poor are dead. The people who were poor and no longer are, let's say, are now dead anyway. The interesting. If I just defeat the man beast, they're no worse off. Right. And, you know, it, it, it would be curious to see. Actually, it's probably a question better left unexplored of whether or not good would come out if the man beast were destroyed. Kind of like how I, I don't really need Pandora to destroy all of her seven evil spirits that were let out of her box in the DC universe right now. So uh, it's just the, the, another interesting thing about all this is that while he's doing the opposite tack of what Jesus did, he still gets the same kinds of complaints that Jesus got, but from the opposite perspective. Because whenever Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God and salvation, they there were people who wanted him to overthrow Rome and yeah, restore they the to lead him. Right. The, a kingdom of God, restore the theocracy, make Israel its own place again, um, like it had been for, you know, that short period of time. And yeah. so when he he's like, right. But he only came for the earthly ministry and its culmination, whereas this guy's the reverse, but they're getting the same kinds of complaints with the, with the coin flip. I just thought all that was an interesting parallel contrapositive kind of thing. Whichever way they do it, there's still going to be the opposite reaction. Right. Also, I have a grammar nitpick. Okay. Because on page 13, the first panel, it says, let follow me he who will. And no, it should be let follow me him who will. But perhaps he was tired of the word him by then, so he just, you know, yeah. changed it. I'm tired of the word him, and it was my name. So Yes, so... That's why the little dash is there. He, he, he started to say him, but he's like, uh, he who will. Because I don't want to go by him anymore, because the last time I was him, it didn't work out very well. Sword kicked the crap out of me. And we go into the city, and my notes kind of thin out for a while, because there's not a whole lot of interest going on. There's, well, the things that are interesting that are going on are kind of the same over the course of several pages. Yeah, they walk around the town. The one note I have is a lot of people in here that Gilkane drew, they kind of have that, like, heroin chic look to them. They're very thin and angular, even more so than his stuff is normally. I mean, compared to the other kids in Warlock, you know, they seem to have more full faces, and these people all seem like, you know, half of them seem like they're junkies. The first close-up of the Prophet almost looks like a Sal Buscema early 90s drawing. It's that angular. Yeah, yeah like something out of a spectacular Spider-Man when he was drawing it at the time. Exactly what I was thinking with the puma and everything else. Yeah. Yes. They are gaunt. They are drawn out. They are angular looking until he gets like a close up on somebody. Then he gives them more fully defined features. Lots of up nose yeah. shots. Oh yeah. Now I was wondering if two things. It's either two things I'm wondering. Either maybe a that's just a part of the city they want they were in right at that time. Kind of similar to like we said the whole Jesus thing of always going to the worst parts. You know he never preached to the teachers and the Pharisees and the wealthy. He always went to the poor and the prostitutes and the people that were not liked. You know, the really lower class. Right, so, right. That's what Adam's doing here. Or, because they never come out and say it directly, but I always keep trying to figure out if 
from what the High Evolutionary says, if because of the man beast, this world, this counter Earth is worse than regular Earth. Like, is it, does it have just the same issues and problems? Or, like, if we were transported there, you know, if we had lived in 1972 on Marvel Earth and were transported to counter Earth, we, would we be looking around at everything going, oh my god, this place is so much more horrible? Because they kind of imply it, but they don't outright say that. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I would be willing to say that, yeah, it, it could be, that since there actually is a tangible force influencing these guys, that, that this world is better off, uh, worse off, I should say, more intensely bad. As far as why he's wandering through the town, there is a panel on, I love that we have page numbers. Or do you have page numbers in your version? Um, actually, no, I'm looking at it right now, and no, there are none. It's page 15, but it's the first full page that takes place in the city. And on the third panel, you have his gem glowing. And he okay, says, yeah. there's evil near, I can sense it, stay here. So I think that he's just following his man-beast senses. That's what, that's what I'm getting from him, yeah. That's right, that's what he's doing, yeah. He's just following along to see where he senses the evil. Which would make sense, it starts off in that area of town anyway, if it's the bad area. Or the whole thing could be the bad area, like we said. It's hard to tell which. So then we meet the the titular prophet. Who's preaching to everybody. He's preaching. John the Baptist. Yeah, there's judgment coming. It's going to be bad. But I am just a prophet. I pave the way that another must walk. But he shall help you as I cannot. If that's not paraphrasing John the Baptist, then I just don't know my, my, my comics very well. Oh, that's definitely paraphrasing it, yeah. And it's so, one of it's so unsubtle that I feel kind of bad. <laughs> yeah, that's very obvious. As much as they were trying to do it in the comic form, where they could, you know, like we said, they could not, you know, get as much trouble for doing it. They were really not subtle about it either. And as you said in the um, the plot synopsis, this man is going to turn out to be the Man Beast. And so I was trying to think back of what is he doing? Why is he out here causing such a ruckus? He's bringing public attention to Adam Warlock. And sure, he's luring him to his doom in the sewers and everything, but couldn't he have done that, I don't know, more subtly? Maybe he doesn't know that Adam Warlock is drawn to him. Sure, because he doesn't know about the gem. Yeah, he doesn't know about the gem. Okay. The closest he could have had was uh, Rodan from from Marvel Premiere 2, but Rodan obviously did not get a chance to check back in. Because he became Rodan. He became ramen. He became dinner. Yes. So my my question was was drawing from the idea that he knew that Adam Warlock was drawn to him, so why wouldn't he do something more subtle? But if he didn't know, then yeah, going out in public and making a ruckus would definitely be a way to um, to get his attention. And once again, I, I didn't think about it until just now, but once again, we have somebody playing two roles. He's playing the role of the Satan and John the Baptist. Now, just like High Evolutionary, we said was playing Satan and God. Mm-hmm. He's playing, you know, more. He's playing dual roles and opposite roles. An interesting parallel here. This is the end of 1972. Okay, in 1971, there is a play, a musical play, release called Godspell, which it does a lot to inform my concept of 70s religious thought. The Godspell film and the Thief in the Night film series 
and the, di- the the dialogues in both of those films are where I get a lot of my ideas of okay, this is what this is what people were saying and thinking about and exploring in the seventies regarding religion. In Godspell, in the script, the script was written for a seven-person cast, and the lines are not labeled according to character; they're labeled according to actor. Because I don't know if you've oh. seen, I don't know if you've seen Godspell. But no, um, aside from Jesus, his followers don't really have characters. They're just his followers. Well, as it turns out, they had the same guy playing John the Baptist at the beginning of the film, or play, that they have playing, him, playing Judas Iscariot at the end of the play. Oh. It's very jarring to see the prophet turn bad at the end. And I wonder if that was... I mean, we know where Thomas was influenced by Jesus Christ Superstar. I wonder if this was another influence on it then. If he, since it was out at the time, there's a pretty good chance he saw that one too. Yeah, yeah, probably is. But I'm wondering when so Jesus Christ... So I'm wondering Christ... came up before this, I know, because he, he's quoted as saying that this was an influence on his uh, direction for Adam Warlock. Yes, rock opera concert re- is a 1970 rock opera. So Jesus Christ Superstar 1970, which I admit I have not seen. And Godspell, which came out in 1971, which I have both seen and been in. So, um, and that would be, and actually, I would guess then it was an influence if he's doing something very similar. I guess he liked the idea of the dual role. Yeah, he's he's very much doing a rock opera kind of. Kind of he, to me, this feels like Godspell in superhero comic book form. And you know what? I could see the way, especially the way Adam Warlock looks here with this costume. I could definitely see him as a in a 70s rock opera, as the lone weird character, you know, with no other, you know, no, everyone else is a normal human, with him as the exception. But then it all becomes a superhero farce when Hawk and Pigeon show up. Forget all the clever names of Rodan and such. This is Hawk and Pigeon. They're spelled in yes, different ways, but that's all there are. Yeah, after we meet the prophet's sister, who, in I love some of the 70s dialogue, Look, look at them up there. They're only delaying until the setting of the sun. And it sets. It sets. You're <laughs> kind of repeating yourself in the 70s, I've noticed. A lot of people, like, they think the same thing twice. It's, it's great. It's just the danger. From whom? From those who wait. And if it weren't all in caps, it would definitely be capitalized. Those who wait. And it's like, okay, so the wedding for the setting of the sun, and right then, just that second, that's when sunset happens. That's pretty good timing. Yep, yep. And it's really noticeable, too. I mean, it's really easy to see the exact second that the sun sets. Yeah, and it got Especially plus pretty quickly. When you're surrounded by high-rises. <laughs> yeah. But considering what we know, I have to assume that those who wait were probably waiting for him and not just sunset. I'm going to have to assume that considering the fact we know the prophet is the man-beast, that if Adam hadn't shown up yet, they weren't going to attack at sundown. No. They were waiting. So actually, they literally are those who wait. They were waiting for him. Yeah. Now, does the prophet's sister stick around? Yeah. Okay. So we'll wait, wait note of the prophet's sister. She's here. She has a little star tattooed on her cheek. It's very dazzler of her. She wants, as soon as she sees Adam Warlock, for whatever reason, she goes up to him and asks him to save her brother, the prophet. And Adam has a really interesting response here. 
He's oh, it says when, I? It is too soon. Yes, it's too soon to save him. Does he know where all this is going in issue eight or whenever it is? That, is it the Hulk issues that happens in? Uh, the Hulk issue is where it finally ends, yeah. Okay. So I wonder, yeah, I don't know. And he says, do you even know who I am? I don't know what name you call yourself, but I know somehow that you're a good man and a mighty one. You must protect my brother. He is in danger. So she thinks that the prophet's in danger from Pigeon and Hawk. Yeah, the whole thing about him, be, her being his sister gets a little weird, as you'll see in the next few issues. Okay, okay. I'll be curious to see how that plays out, because unlike last recording, where I'd already read most of this issue, I have not read anything of next issue yet. Yeah. Well, like we said, we know he's the man beast. So that's revealed yes. this issue. Right. So she's not his sister, but events will happen in a few issues after that where he is his, where she is his sister. Okay. We'll have to see how all that plays out because right now you're double speaking. <laughs> yeah, that really, she's, it really doesn't come up. I'm trying to remember where. I think it's more like seven and eight where you finally get the whole story of that. That's fine. We'll get there. Okay, but yeah, so, so we could just assume right now that she's in on it since she's claiming to be his sister. And obviously it's one of those Batman masks where even you can have a huge snout and big ears and still put on a human mask overhead over you and look normal. Yeah, the prophet does not give any indication that he's anything strange. Although whenever she, whenever he's punching out Pigeon and Hawk in the bed of the guy's truck, the prophet just stands there. It's not I who seeks to prove myself, my friend, but you... And so Warlock continues belting it out with two new men right there, like two feet from him. Yeah, he doesn't even do anything. David jumps into the fight and gets his butt kicked pretty quickly. Yeah, at least he tries. Good job, David. Yeah, he makes an attempt. So, yeah, Adam, let's see. Fight, fight, fight. It's not wise to flaunt the will of the man beast. Adam Warlock's gem starts lighting up. And then they shoot him with one kind of laser blast. David gets in, gets punched out in two panels. So now Adam Warlock has bad guys who've gotten away and injured David in his hands, arms. And I says, but you are unharmed, David. Yeah, because they chuck him from, like, high in the sky. Right, somehow he didn't get hurt by that, because it's comics. Yeah, you can catch people falling at high velocity and not have a problem. As long as you catch them before they hit the ground, it's totally okay. Because it's yeah. the ground that kills you. Well, ground's evil. Yeah. Everyone knows that's, that. That's how we ground kids. Exactly. You, Prophet, what's your connection with those two? Why were they after you? I have come not to answer questions, but to pose them. Who are you to question the Prophet anyway? Wench. Yeah, he yeah. probably would say wench. He has a look. Although it does look like it's a... Actually, looking at that panel, it looks like she has the, the person saying, what's your connection with those two? Why were they after you? It looks like she has the beauty mark on her, on her face. That his sister has, right. I think the same thing. And the other girl looks like Ellie. I think they made a... I think there's a panel mistake there. I mean, a placement of a war balloon. Or a storytelling choice that gets made differently later. Yeah. I don't know. But either way, yeah, that looks like the sister. It's like, well, doesn't she know why? Because, I mean... She was the one saying they were attack, going to attack him, so assume, you assume she had a clue. <laughs> then he goes into his whole, I'm hearing voices that tell me what to do. He have all these, like, druggy clouds floating around his head. Oh, um, yeah, the green the, mist. Yeah. Like. The voices tell me to go this way, and you come too. 
Although I do like, real quick, before that, I do like before when he says, who, you know, like he said, who are you to question the prophet? I like how Adam at least does stick up for his kids, and it's like, uh, they risked their lives for you, so you owe them something. Right. And Eve has a bit of a threat. Now, I ask the same question, and will you refuse me as well? So whenever he leads Warlock off to what turns out to be a trap, his sister stays behind to watch out for the, um, the kids. They'll be safe with my I'm sister, sure. if with anyone. Yeah, and I'm sure that they'll be safe with her. Yeah, because because she's fine and she has a star on her face. Right, it's a man beast. She's a man beast. She's got to be trustworthy, right? Right. So then they go down to the Ninja Turtles' house. Yeah, they get some pizza. But they have kicked out the Ninja Turtles, and I I think it's funny as they're walking along, like the floor falls out from underneath them, and they both look completely surprised to fall through. But it had to have been. the best part is the panel above. They go down to the sewers, and then they're walking up. And then they walk down, <laughs> and they go to the cave, and then they fall down. Like, there's just... It looks like they just went, like, what, ten miles underneath, and they're walking up, they're walking down, there's some caves, there's some water, trap door. Now they're in Jersey. I, I mean, the man beast would pretty busy then if he had set this base up already. Well, no, he just uses the the ones that Mole Man and Tyrannus and all those other underground people have used. Well, do they exist here? Say again? Do they exist here? Oh. I guess not, because this would be a non-super world. Okay. So, yeah, I guess he didn't have to carve it out on himself without even an intro to help him. Well, he had all his new men. Yeah, a lot of stuff done. Yeah. And they've been busy. I mean, they don't not have a base, but there's art, you know, it looks like statues of art and everything. And so, we're going to jump on to, like, I, like John said earlier, I'm going to let you guys know where you can get the reprint of this issue in case you want to read it and you don't feel like looking for the original book. Uh, it is reprinted in Essential Warlock Volume 1, which is a, a cheaper version of getting everything and also plays in black and white. You can get it in color and a little more expensive in the Marvel Masterworks Adam Warlock Volume 1. Or you can read the way I've been reading it, which is on digital from the Marvel Digital Comics Unlimited website and app. So there's a few different ways of finding it. I didn't know I had an essential. Mike's Amazing World does not include that. I got it up uh, Combo TV. Okay. Well, the good thing about the essential is it has also the Starlin run. Basically, it has the entire 1970s Warlock run. Everything from Marvel Premiere 1 all the way up to the the, uh, the two annuals that close out the story. Yeah, the only thing they don't include is the uh, early 60s stuff. Yeah, but really, I mean... No, I was going to say, like, I noticed when I was doing them, he doesn't really appear in much of them anyway. I mean, the FF stuff, he barely appears at all. And the most you can really say is those two years of Thor, where he fights Thor. And having a hard on for Seth, what did that really do to contribute to the rest of the character? I mean, exactly. everybody has a hard on for Seth. Pretty much. So yeah, if you want to get Adam's pretty much all of Adam's seventy stuff, you you know, in a cheap way, yeah, go for the essential. Plus, you can call him in later on. Uh, the two Marvel Masterworks, I guess they. Well, is there more than one Marvel Masterwork? Do they do his Starlin stuff in a Marvel Masterwork? I don't know. I haven't looked up actually that stuff yet. I only looked up the reprints for the ones the issues we're doing so far. No, I do oh, doesn't look like, does not look like they do. 
So there's only the one volume. Yep. So far as Mike's Amazing World has told us, if you want the entire 70s run, get the um, essential volume, because the Marvel Masterwork only has the pre-Starlin bits. And while I definitely enjoy the pre-Starlin bits, Starlin is where stuff gets real. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, does it tell you where, where for the Marvel Masterwork what issues are included? I mean, I'm, I know it's the Marvel Premiere and the Warlock stuff, but Masterworks are usually about ten issues. And that's eight issues of his run and the two premiere. So I'm guessing the Hulk stuff that closes it all out isn't even included. No, it is. It goes from Marvel Premiere 1 to the end of The Incredible Hulk. Okay. So it, it's, a long so it's, okay. It's, the insi- it's the entire pre-Starlin Adam Warlock story. The, the Roy, oh. Basically the, the Roy Thomas story. He's not. He didn't write every single issue, but it's his story. He starts it, he ends it. He just takes a couple issues off in the middle. Yeah. No, actually, he doesn't end it. Well, no, he sort of ends it. That's right. He's a, a co-plotter, I believe, a co-scripter on one of those Hulk issues at the end. But I think it's Gary Conboy who does most of the writing. Okay, because according to Mike's Amazing World, I thought I saw his name. Not that it matters. We'll get there. All right, so like we do every episode, we're just going to check back in with Adam's friends that he's appeared with before and see where they are currently. And that's well, right now, yeah. the only book he's appeared in is uh, FF and Thor, because there is no Marvel premiere this month. And his uh, Scooby Hippie crew haven't got their own ongoing yet. So um, in Fantastic Four number 125, we have a story entitled The Monster's Secret by Stanley and John Buscema where Reed figures out what the monster is after and sides with him, but must stand against the thing and the torch. Meanwhile, Sue is in danger of drowning with the monster being her only hope. And in Thor 202, and None Dare Stand Against Eagle Prime, by Gary Conway and John Buscema, again, Thor and his warrior friends of Asgard war with Eagle Prime on the streets of New York. Meanwhile, Odin's inconceivable plan is put into motion, and none may disturb him. John Buscema was very busy back in the 70s. You know, he was, uh, but then a lot of artists were. And some say they're not busy now, but they have to draw a lot more lines now than they did back then. And the issues are longer, I think. They are. We're, we're in the, there's a period in the 70s where comic book stories dipped down to 17 pages as a standard. That's, that's kind of crazy. Okay, so we're on Adam's powers, and Adam actually doesn't really show anything different than he has before. He has levitation by the power of his mind, and the ability to kick ass. Yeah. Uh, the only thing really new we could say, I guess, is the. Uh, it looks like the gem is leading him to the man beast. Right. But we don't really get a confirmation of that. So I want to say there's really no new powers in this episode. I mean, it's this issue. Yeah, probably. I think they, they probably have him defined as well as he's going to be defined, at least for this run. I bet you we'll see more when Starlin picks up, but I, I don't expect to see anything more come out during this run. Yeah, so far it looks like it's just, from what I remember, it's pretty much going to be uh, status quo powers. Yeah. And so we're almost at the end now, everybody. Uh, before we get to the end, though, something I actually started doing a episode or two ago. And what the hell are you on here, John? Too, you hear this now, too? is when I um, put my show up, I put it up on Podbean, and so they have a little setting there where you can actually look to see where people are downloading your show from. And so I just find that fascinating. So I'm just having fun kind of shouting out where different people are downloading from because it just blows my mind. So 
I have apparently somebody listening in the city of Chita, which is in western Russia, sorry, eastern Russia, north, just north of Mongolia. Okay. So, hello, Chita. How you guys doing? Send an email. Is, I want to know who's there. How many of you are there? Is it Dosvidanya? Is that hello in Russian? Or is that goodbye? I think that's goodbye. Oh. Well, yeah, sorry I tried. And the majority of my Russian is basically from reading uh, Chris Claremont's uh, X-Men and his lines of Colossus. Oh, boje moi. Da. <laughs> Lenin's okay. dope. Don't forget you also have listeners in Florida. Oh, I'm getting to, I'm doing US ones too. And I see the I see there. You see my picture? I, I see the dot over where you are. Yes. Right there. That's where I am. That's where you, you are. Right? Me. Well, thanks to Google Earth. Google Earth, we pretty much can. Hey, Gene, we should do a podcast. Sounds like a great idea, Jeff. But what will we talk about? How about a superhero that we both love? Perfect. Some like Thor or Captain America? Uh, both great choices, but um, I think they're being covered by somebody else already. Wait, I've got it. What about the protector of the universe? Like Voltron? No, no, no. The guy with the jewelry that lets him create whatever he wants. Ah, Green Lantern, nice. Close. No, this guy has cosmic awareness. Captain Marvel? Almost. I mean, Quasar. Ah, Quasar. Who doesn't love a good Quasar? Tune in to the Quantum Cast, covering all things Quasar. Yes, that's right. You can find us at quantumbands.blogspot.com. And on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Yeah, that that didn't sound scripted at all, did it? All right, so I think that brings us to the end. Just want to remind everybody, especially people in Cheetah, that you can send emails to us. Actually, let me check see if I have a new email. So, this email came... Um, from James T. And this came just before actually I released episode 9. And it's subtitled, Has the podcast entered the cocoon? To Al, official historian of him. It's the end of June, and I'm wondering if the podcast is currently regenerating inside the cocoon. Will it soon rise again? Better than ever? What sort of new powers will it have? Has it maybe turned into a Magus podcast without me knowing? No. I must not think such things. Alas... I'll be waiting with bated breath for the next resurrection. Mr. Cosmic. So, James Cosmic, um, yes, we've had a new episode. In fact, we already had one episode since you sent this email, and here's the next one, and it should be going up pretty quickly from when I'm recording this. Actually, should be going up in just a few hours. So, there was just a little bit of break time. I was spending so much time doing podcasting stuff and reading stuff and researching and getting ready for the podcast, I wasn't taking much time out to enjoy reading comics or anything like that and I don't want to lose the feeling of the fact that this is fun because as long as I'm doing this for fun and not that I feel like I have to I like doing it and the more I start feeling like I have to do this I have to do this the less I want to so I figured I'd take a few days off like a week or so and not really work on it much I mean I did a recording or two so I had to do some preparing but for the most part beyond that wasn't editing wasn't getting ready just Leaving it alone, give myself a few days. Figured, all right, maybe we'll go up a week or so late. Forgot my mother-in-law was visiting right about the time I was ready to start up again. So I really wasn't able to get much done for a whole nother week either. Which is why the last episode and this one are kind of late. I'm hoping to catch up so by August, which would be like episode 12, 
she'll be back on our schedule of on or about the 1st and 16th for each episode. I'm just not going to kill myself by trying to make sure it's on the 1st and 16th. As long as I'm close, I'll be happy. But either way, James, thank you for your email. I hope you're still listening, and I hope you're still enjoying. And if you also want to listen to more of me and Brian from Episode 8, you can find us at 4ColorFanboys at 4Color.Publix.com. And John, where are you? Um, I am currently somewhere between the states of madness and anticipation. Sort of on the bay there. But okay. as far as as far as the internet goes, I have a boy talking to me. Hi, Keenan. Yeah, we're almost done. Can you give me three minutes? Three? We have to. I'm sorry. Okay, we can do two. <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. You, you're not fine. I'm just I'm making him wait for his milk refill. Um, as far as the internet goes, I am at the new Fifty Two Adventures of Superman, where. We have had, I believe, by the time this goes up, our 52nd episode uh, with a panel talking all about things New 52, good things, bad things, things that climb on rocks, tough things, sissy things, even things with chicken pox. And um, then I have the Star Wars Saga Cast, which has started up over at the StarWarsSagaCast.com. Notice the V on the front of that, the StarWarsSagaCast.com. And let's see, Golden Age Superman and Avengers Inspirations are still in progress. So, do please give a listen and send me an email. Let me know you're there. Woohoo! Yay! Alright, and we'll be back, everybody, in about two weeks with Warlock number two. And we'll get to see Warlock's tempting by the Man Beast and how well that works. And to his little hint, it works better than the High Evolutionaries. <laughs> a lot better. You wouldn't think that Man Beast was his type, but... It's those gold people. Never tell what they're going to go for. (laughs) All right, we'll see everybody then. Bye. Bye. Resurrections, an Adam Warlock podcast, is a fan-made production and makes no money or claim of ownership over Adam Warlock, the Man Beast, Dave Carter, or any other characters or places discussed in this episode. John M. Wilson is trademarked and copyrighted John M. Wilson. Any similarity to any persons, living or dead, is purely coincidental. Those who wait can be contacted via Rhino Records and are available for birthday parties, graduations, and bar mitzvahs. I was like, oh no, what's happening now? Just the mute button. So while I was sitting here waiting for you, 
I did not get my microphone set up because that'd be too too uh, obvious. Instead, I was just reading comics. So I can't really fault you for that. I finished an issue of Doctor Solar, Man of the Atom, the early 1960s version. That's a good book. I've heard good things about it, and apparently, like the first like year or so, he wasn't even like costumed. No, there's there is no costume. I don't know if there ever will be a costume. I guess maybe there will be later, but. It's not a comics code book. I saw the one you posted the other day where she was, like, in bed. Yeah, like, like about to shoot her. She had a pistol up against her head. I saw that, and I was like, wait a second. How did the code let this go by? And I saw that they didn't. Dirty, dirty, dirty. Because, you know, attempted suicide is so kid-friendly. Wait, it's not? Last I, I check, it's not. That's why I'm not allowed to babysit anymore. I keep telling you, man. You get, you got you to gotta raise yourself to a new level of behavior when you're going to be around kids. You can't be smoking pot. You can't have them smoking pot. Can they roll it for you? I think that's okay, yeah. Because okay. they're not actually inhaling. Yeah. Is that what we learned from the 90s? Yeah. I didn't inhale, so it's okay. So, what are your I never thoughts? Inhaled. I went to Amsterdam, but I didn't inhale anything. <laughs> what are your thoughts on... There's a rumored WB movie schedule of their film plans for the next several years that theoretically is supposed to get unveiled at Comics-Con in San Diego and the schedule includes a Man of Steel 2 for 2018 so separate from the Batman one yeah Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice for 2016 also in 2016 Shazam and Sandman Justice League and Wonder Woman and a Flash and Green Lantern team up coming out in 2017 and then Man of Steel 2 in 2018 wow There, wow, that's a lot. I have to actually, it sounds like a lot. I need to actually put them down one day and write down like when the Marvel tip came out when the D- and like this DC plan and see if like it looks similar because the DC one just sounds like a lot coming out at once. But it doesn't seem like I mean, but is it that much different? Um, I believe Marvel has been averaging two films a year. Sometimes three, but usually no. I think they, I don't think they've gone over two. Um, you had Iron Man and Hulk. You had Iron Man right. two and Thor. Okay. You had Cap. Actually, I think the year of Iron Man two, you didn't have another Marvel film. I think Thor and Cap were the same year. Yeah, Thor and Cap were the same year. Yeah, because I'm only counting, of course, the one produced by Marvel, not the uh, X Men or Spider Man stuff. Right. So, Thor and Cap were the same year, and then the Avengers was the year after that. Yeah, Um, the Avengers was the only one that year. Was that 2012? I think so, or 11. It was the same year as Dark Knight Rises, I know that. 2012 was the Avengers, so Iron Man 3, was that 2013? Yes, because that was last year. And then and Thor the Dark World was late in the year. 
Yes, because that was early on. Because early on in the season of Shield, they do reference what happened in there. It takes place after. Right. That's right. one of Peter McNichol as the Asgardian. So yeah, we haven't had more than two Avengers film, Avengers related films in one year, and sometimes only one. Yeah, and then this year it's Cap, Winter Soldier, and uh, Guardian. Right. And then next year is Avengers 2. Cool. Ooh. Forward. We'll see how they do Quicksilver. Sorry. Seems a lot sooner than it should be. Yeah. And I want to see how they do Quicksilver, because Quicksilver and X-Men Days of Future Past was the best part of the movie. <laughs> I mean, I like the movie, but he was he stole the show. Yeah, he was he was great. I was reading Justice League, the latest issue, a little while ago. Oh, 30? Yeah. And there's one bit where the Flash asks the question, and then he says, never mind, I just ran and checked. This yeah. is like, like the next speech balloon. Now, I'm liking the last few issues a lot. 30 was a lot of fun. 30 was really good. Could you tell uh, Batman and Lex Luthor's here to see him? Yeah. I mean, granted, it was the same shtick as the cliffhanger at the end of 29. Or, no, at the end of Forever Evil. Yeah. At the end of Forever Evil, he's like, oh my gosh, he knows Batman's identity. And they play on that in Justice League 30. But it still worked. I, I was not oh, complaining. Yeah. And I'm waiting for somebody. To, I mean, how many people from the Titans, well, pre, you know, Infinite Crisis, knew Dick Grayson was Nightwing and never pieced it together? I mean, Deathstroke knew for years. Deathstroke does not have a relationship with Dick Grayson. Well, no, yeah, well, now, but I meant pre-52, pre-Infinite Crisis, yeah. even. I was always waiting for somebody to do this, that's all. Like, there are so many people who knew who Dick Grayson was and never pieced it together. I like that they're doing that. Now, if they would just acknowledge that Superman and Lois Lane have no secrets, that'd be great. <laughs> not that I'm bitter... Not bitter at all. Of course. Eh, I was never a big Lois fan anyway. She always annoyed me. She was always a little too bitchy for me. <laughs> okay, podcasts and resurrections and Warlock One notes. Yep. Okay. I am Red Eye. Okay. I guess we'll start the intro again. Most perfect. Oh, I see what you did there. Well done. So, Applause. It's sort of a one. Thank you. Thank you. You're all weak. Try the veal. But, but, yeah, so. but the dead cows, the babies, what are you going to do? We eat them. Oh, yeah, because they're animals, that's what they're there for. Yeah. They're yummy. Although I can't really remember the last time I ate veal anyway. Italian restaurants, that's the only time I ever eat it. That's how I really see it, yeah. At times, we just don't care. We're like, yeah, we'll eat it anyway. We'll put a fancy name, Scalapini afterwards, you'll feel fine. Right, right. Oh, look, I'm Thanks. impaled. <laughs> That's my Olaf moment. Olaf? From Frozen, dude. Oh, that's, oh, that's right. There, that's right. I forgot there was a character Olaf. I haven't seen it. Uh, 
One second. I think I missed That's what I referenced. Yep. So, in case you haven't noticed, I have my boy, my boy next to me. We are we are here together. That's fine. But yeah, he, I guess he heard you mention Olaf and got excited. Yes, yeah, so he had to contribute to. So he's going to help us sometimes, I guess. Um, but yeah, no, I haven't seen that. I mean, I've heard. I, I, it's not like I don't watch stuff that's animated, but I don't have kids, so if something Disney Princess comes up, it's, that's not my first thing to jump to. I'll probably watch uh, it. Yeah, it, it's it's so not your typical Disney Princess movie. It does a lot yeah. of things to turn those tropes on their head. It's it's a it's a worth seeing film. I, I, I will say that. Yeah. On the other hand, though, the story I work at during especially during Christmas time. It played that Let It Go song played so much. I'm half wanting to see it just to know what the hell it was, and half just not wanting to see it because of the hearing the damn song over and over again. <laughs> let it go, let, let it go. So, um, turning away from the princesses and back to the uh, Prince of Golden Skin. Yes. 